Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Behind the Hashtag, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the real-life stories behind hashtag activism. Today, we get behind hashtag homes, not hotels, and hashtag communities, not camps, and find out what these hashtags mean for unaccompanied asylum-seeking minors in Brighton. I'm your host, Niawa Bottomley. And I've been an artist, activist and community worker in the city for 20 years. My passion lies in telling underrepresented stories and hearing from marginalised voices. I was inspired to go on this fact-finding mission after news broke early this year that 137 unaccompanied asylum-seeking minors aged just 16 to 17 had gone missing from a hotel in the city since August 2021. News coverage was sparse, with few details, and this podcast is an attempt to find out what we as a community have been doing and can continue to do to make the lives of unaccompanied minors better, more secure, and hopefully to mitigate the risks for these vulnerable teenagers. I invited a young refugee who I've known for several years to my home, and I was interested to hear his perspective about his life in Brighton. I'm 22 years old. I'm from Sudan. I came to the UK since 2017. I left Sudan because of the conflict, the civil war that happened in Sudan back in uh, 2012 to 2013. Uh, I was about 14, so we decided to leave the country. It wasn't safe. But then my uncle said it's not safe for us. We didn't know where my mom was, so we left Libya and... Yeah, my uncle helped me to get to Italy. I also met his foster parents and visited the home where he lived for almost five years. They all chose to remain anonymous. I believe you might be on your fourth placement, is that correct? So we've been fostering since um, 2012. And since then we've had four long-term placements. When we became foster carers, we decided that we wanted to focus on unaccompanied minors, given you know our backgrounds and having worked in refugee asylum field. And by their nature, once you decide to specialise in that area, then the kids you'll, you'll be working with will be 16, 17, typically. The first boy was with us for two years. Mm-hmm. The second boy was with us for about just two years, two years again. again. Then we had a couple of short-term ones, so one was a few months, one was a week, and then we've had a boy with us five, five years. <laughs> and Up until the age of 21, actually. Yeah. Until he was ready to leave yeah. and live independently. Yeah. Now we've had someone with us for four months, five months. What gets overlooked um, by the Home Office and by most people, I would say, is the effects that trauma would have on the young person. So the people that come to us, the young kids that come to us, are are traumatised, you know. They've been um, through horrendous experiences and the journeys are often really long and terrific. It took me about two years to get to Italy, basically. In Italy, I stayed, like, for two months or something. First, uh, they took us to an island called Sardinia or something. And then, yeah, I managed to get to um, Rome, and from Rome, basically, the the route for refugees is clear, you know. From there, you go to, you know, the borders of Italy and France, and then you cross to France. And I came to France, 
Then I went to Cali. I stayed there for at least probably seven or eight months. And then, yeah, yeah I managed to get here. Your uncle, was he with you in Calais? Uh, no, nah, my uncle is in Libya, so I only travelled with some Sudanese. So you travelled from Libya? Yeah. Without to, your... To the UK to by the myself. To the UK by yourself. Yes. Mm -hmm. We all have got the same route, basically, just to go somewhere that's safe, you know. Because mm. yeah, Libya wasn't that safe for me at that time. I mean, for all of us. You have, you know, three stages, like, what's happened in their home country, whatever horrible things have happened to them and their families. Then there's a horrific journey, which can take years. Mm. And lots, you know, lots of bad things can happen, and lots mm. of exploitation. And then when they arrive here, like, they're just, uh, you know, they're up against uh, the Home Office, which has a culture of disbelief about their claims. And it's a kind of, like, big bureaucratic legal process, which, which doesn't seem to be massively sympathetic towards them. When I got to the UK, the first day, to be honest, I was a bit nervous because obviously it's yeah, like a new country and I don't know anyone here. But when when I got off the lorry, we were walking down the street, my clothes was full of dirt and stuff. And I asked someone to guide me to the police station and she, um, yeah, she was, yeah, she was really helpful. She took me to the police station and stuff. As soon as I told them I came from Kylie and stuff, she uh, she said that I, I know the situation there and blah, blah. And then she said that you were hungry and then she bought me some like drinks and some food. And you went to the police station. I wasn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't speak English like, properly, but I know like the stuff that I can just say, you know, like the very simple stuff. Because obviously I used to go to, to Kylie, I used to go to charity for language and stuff. The police, they called some like an interpreter. Yeah, she speaks Arabic. And he spoke to her and, and, and they said to me, what? where did you come from and then stuff and I was like I just came from France and this and this um, after that they yeah they they took me to I don't know, a place where they say shoe and stuff and I've been there for a few minutes and then they they came and took me to to a family coming here our house we're basically two middle-class people motivated by the fact we were refugees whereas if you're unlucky you go to someone foster carer it's their day job, like, you know, the money they get, they have, to, they have to live on. And so some of them had a really tough time. It was like limits on using, couldn't open, you know, wasn't allowed to go into the kitchen and stuff like that. Um, but he was actually, kicked out in the daytime. He, had to, he was kicked out during the daytime yeah. in his first placement before he came here, you know. So, so it was like, get out of the house, you can't be there in the daytime. You know? yeah. <laughs> because they didn't trust him, you know. So it's... Um, yeah, there's a, there's a, there is a quite a, quite a bad level of care in some of the, the foster placements, but then people are doing it for for work as well. So they're sort of you know, still going. On. So yeah, sort of wanted to say that, but it's hard to really say that. I mean, you know, when I when I was working at the refugee council, that was that was my motivation for doing it. Was was they going to some foster placements yeah. and they were horrific, you know, and and children's homes, you know. No, I mean I I I a um. A, a young person from Sierra Leone, tell me that. Somebody in the in the children's home he was at sort of threatened to cut his hand off if he went to the fridge to get food, was an example an early sort of shocking example. The UK is currently facing a crisis in foster care. 
Annually, there are currently more foster parents deregistering from the service than those being approved, with an 18% decline in foster households since 2018. Ofsted warns that the sector will soon reach breaking point if more carers aren't recruited. Reports indicate that the lack of mental health support for children and also the lack of respite opportunities for parents is driving this change. In addition, the cost of living crisis has had a real impact, with 54% of foster carers considering leaving the sector due to the financial strain and 89% having reported cutting back on essentials such as food and heating and fuel just to get by. Many are moving from local authority fostering, where they receive £130 per week, to private agencies, where they can earn up to £450. Since I left my country, I've never been left to his family, so I was in that, you know, I, mean, I was in that confidence to be like, if some, you don't know someone, you, will, you won't be comfortable, like, you know, getting with them, like, in the first time, you know. But after a few days, uh, I was totally okay. I mean, one thing we definitely have noticed is how difficult it is when it comes to their asylum claim. So, you know, as foster carers, uh, we're unusual in that we've got expertise and advice and contacts. You know, the first two boys uh, had really difficult times with their asylum claim. Uh, sorry, the first three boys. My partner was involved in putting submissions into the appeal, giving her own reflections about the, the kind of mental health toll it was all taking. Mm -hmm. um, well, it basically didn't really matter really what the young people had been through in terms of, you know, their experience. They, they were refused and then had to go to appeal. Yeah. The most recent young person we have with us has been granted refugee status in a very short time. But I think that might be maybe because he's got a sibling here already. So two of the first three cases we had it's really hard to see why the Home Office was rejecting it. They accepted so many elements of the case. It's it just really surprising they were, they were refusing it. I'm thankful that I'm in a safe place. I eat, I breathe, that's everything for me. And I'll be able to help my family, that's the, the priority for me. And I'll be able to feed my family, that's what I want. My biggest concern about now is my family's safety. Because probably heard about the conflict in Sudan since it started in was it in Ramadan. Yeah. It's been for two weeks now. I mean, when I was there, the the problem was just like it was civil war. It's still the government involved between the tribes and stuff, but this one is a bit gone a bit bigger. So it's uh, it's it's worse in Sudan at the moment. It was obvious during our conversation that this new conflict, which started on the fifteenth of April, was weighing heavily on his mind. The country's army and a paramilitary group called the Rapid Support Forces are currently engaged in a power struggle as to who gets to run this resource-rich nation. Bombings and gun battles have been taking place in the heart of the capital, Khartoum, in residential neighbourhoods, and Sudanese people have been left to fend for themselves, with many fleeing to the border with Egypt and beyond. And are you in contact with your family? Um, yeah, it's hard, it's hard, yeah, but I'm still in contact with them. Sometimes they, they don't have signal and stuff, but yeah, I, um, I'm doing just my best to keep, keep eye on them and stuff. Will they be following your roots, do you think? You know, my mum, I don't think she wants to leave. I don't know what will happen, but obviously, even if they left, where would they go? 
there's no no place that they can actually think to go, you know. I don't know what happened anyway. I've got two brothers, they live there in Cairo, so I'm trying to bring them there, they're young. They're like 15, 16. They're always staying in the refugee camp, but obviously I managed to get them like a place where they can live in now. They're too young, they can't work. They have to help them that way. And this is the one of the problems because, you know, in uh, one of the groups that they're fighting in Sudan now is because they're trying to like force young boys to get to the army so they can go and fight, you know. It's, it's hard, yeah. Th that's one of the reasons that they went to they went to Egypt since the government of al-Bashir fall down. Yeah, I'm trying to do a family reunion, and which is a bit hard for me. And the next thing is just to be able to, like, I mean, help my family and then hopefully one day I will go see them. What I find is really helpful is if, if they, once they make friends in their own peer groups, so if they, if they, if they can be helped in any way to form friendships, um, especially with people from their own cultures, but not exclusively, um, that can be really, really helpful. It's a real turning point, it seems to be, for me, with, with um, looking after the young people. It's, it's about finding the community, it really is about really, it's all about community and peers, friendships, you know, whether they're from your own community or not actually. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, I'm thinking of the other young person who was, it was difficult. Well, he really struggled, partly because all his friends his school. And his school was not in the city, uh -huh. so it was quite a long journey. He was also particularly traumatised as well, so... Uh -huh. so but he was, he was into a particular sport, and, uh, and so that, you know, that became a real thing for him. I think, yeah, I mean, the level, the level of trauma is, is, um, will vary. Obviously, every young person that comes won't be as as deeply traumatised as this young person, whether, you know, they will all obviously have gone through very, sort of very challenging and difficult experiences, but they, they, they have all had different levels of personal sort of traumatic experience yeah. that, that affects their journey to sort of healing. I mean, my, my relationship with my first family was the best thing I, I could say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because then you can just feel, at least you can have, like, say, someone that, stand beside you when, when in difficulties and stuff. And they were basically helping with like anything, you know. I used to go to football a lot, so I've never been to a stadium. Because he has a t season ticket. So we used to go there like every, I mean, every other weekend to just watch Brighton game, which is amazing. When I came to Brighton, college already started, and I didn't go to college, so I was just home doing nothing but Brighton Table Tennis Club, maybe you've heard of it or something. I have, yeah. It was in Cape Town. It was a really nice place. I, I used to go there every day. I was bored at home. Go, I used to go there every single day for a few hours, so I managed to get friends, and then my English got better. I was playing ping pong. I built a relationship with, the, with a lot of people there. I made friends and stuff. And um, then, yeah, I got into football, and then later on, I went, I went to the Sudanese community. Brighton's really good. For that, isn't it? I mean, the the for example, the table tennis club is is yeah. is a is a place that has been um, exceptional and been able to sort of welcome sort of young people and and um, make them feel seen, give them new skills. They call it Pinglish, so they help mm -hmm. some of this English, 
And then he went, he went really regularly and became very good at table tennis. I mean, so much so, they, he went on residential at the British mm -hmm. Table Tennis headquarters. He also helped coach and did training sessions for kids at schools. And he also he went to Paris, didn't he? Was it Brussels? Um, yeah. For, a, uh, for some kind of EU thing mm -hmm. as well. You know, it really built up his confidence and self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he got community as well. Either we've put them or they've made touch with members of their own community in Brighton. Mm -hmm. uh, there was BMECP. The BMEYPP. The BMEYPP, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Which was a real game changer for yeah. the first young person when he came here. I remember bringing him along and he was reluctant to go. He was a little bit shy. And then we'd been in there about five minutes and he's just he's turning around going, bye. <laughs> and am I right in thinking his thing was football? Yes. Football, yes, absolutely. He found a football team very quickly. Our own son plays football. So for all the boys, like one of the things we've done early, early on, just get them football boots, try and connect them somehow to training or, or a club. And a lot of these young people that come obviously don't have family. And, um, you know, they need a lot of support. And, and I don't know what the percentage is of young people who actually manage to settle into foster care. There, there's a real shortage of foster carers. Mm. I don't know how you'd manage to sort of persuade people that it's a positive thing to do. I mean, for us, it was something that we really wanted to do and we have benefited a lot as a family because we have done it. We have now got an extended family from all around the world. Um, our young people are now, that have lived with us, are now having families of their own and children of their own. They're part of our family. They're still part of our family. Yeah, yeah. We have our own child, so it's good to have those kind of um, relationships with siblings who wouldn't, who wouldn't have had otherwise. And I think for the young people, it's always been really nice for them to have someone younger who basically, you know, lo looks up to them and wants to play with them. Like, so that's always been something which, which has helped the young people settle. He's my little brother now. Uh, yeah, I've been, I've been watching him growing up, like since he was nine, I was here. I left only like a few months ago, which is well, I've been there for almost four years. So where are your um, your young men now? All the long-term ones are local, living in Brighton, we're in touch with, they have keys to our house, see pretty regularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no, they've had a couple of calls from them this morning. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's been such an enriching experience for us and I'd really sort of recommend it to to people if they have the, the um, it's, it's less about the space in their house than the space in, this, gosh, this sounds really cool. Yeah. <laughs> the space in their hearts. <laughs> I don't know. It's just worked for us as a family. I can't think of a better place for an accompanying mine to be in than Brighton. It's quite relatively safe. It's quite walkable. <laughs> like you've got, and you've got the sea, you've got the downs, uh, you know, lots of things you can do. That, Aren't expensive. The city of Sanctuary as well is really yeah, good, isn't yeah. it? So it's, it's, it's a pretty good place to be in. I really wanted to see if I could find out more about the experiences of asylum seekers currently housed in hotels in the city. So for a different perspective, I went to the home of Mike Collier, where we sat down in his living room while his wife prepared some lunch in the kitchen. Mike is a professor in migration at Sussex University 
and he visits refugee camps all over the world to conduct his research. In addition to that, he's also a community activist and is currently chair of Brighton Sanctuary on Sea. I mean, for the last two years or so, when refugees have been housed in, in hotels, the thing that's really made lives better for them is, is community activism. You know, people coming along, raising money for various things that they want to do, making sure people get out of the hotel to go to Park Run, for example, to get to the swimming pool, campaigning to allow the swimming pool to let them in, searching around the community for the right sort of sports equipment that they need to, to get into those activities, just making sure that they've got the, you know, the opportunities to, to do stuff, to do stuff active, particularly to get out of the hotels. Um, and they've got the equipment to, to do them. Um, there's also been a lot of work around English language support, um, trying to to allow people to use these this time that they're stuck in the hotel, which has just gone on and on and on for some people. Um, I mean, they should be in these hotels. For, these are, are temporary hotels, and, and even though temporary isn't defined in the in the legislation, it's clear that temporary means a couple of months, really, not much more than that. Um, so people are there for really extended periods of time now. Some people have been in the hotels well over a year. Um, and, and they're not allowed to work in that time. Um, they're waiting for decisions on their asylum claims, so it's a really uncertain period of time for them. Um, and they're incredibly vulnerable. In the hotels, they are supposed to be fed, but um, everyone has had really serious problems with the quality of food um, but they don't really get enough money to go and buy themselves food they're not allowed to um, to cook in the hotels for themselves um, and um, the the sort of conditions that they're they're kept in really are only suitable for very temporary sorts of accommodation there's you know, couples in very small rooms um, that have to go downstairs with other people that they don't know to eat the conditions are really very challenging for them in those hotels and the things that have allowed them to cope are really um, the sort of community support that they've received over that, that time. Much of my conversation with Mike echoed the conversations I had with the foster family. Being a refugee is by definition like an isolating experience. You're going yeah. leaving behind a community, going to somewhere that isn't your community on a journey yeah. which is full of danger. Which is what's so scary about, you know, the talk of putting refugees in barracks and putting them yeah. in ferries and putting them in situations where they are totally removed from all communities. Yeah. So, you know, they, they've got no chance of building mm -hmm. those relationships, mm -hmm. accessing the local table tennis mm -hmm. team or the football yeah. team mm -hmm. or, you know, all of those small things that just make you feel like human, I guess. We're going in a really, really dangerous direction. I was reading about plans to even detain children to remove that sort of absolute right of, of the rights of the child. And some of this is just pretty callous, it's politics, and a lot of this, it doesn't really matter whether they're going to do it. They're talking about it this side of an election. Bearing in mind, despite where the debate is in this country and where the, you know, how the media talk about it, how politicians talk about it, if you look at the, the polling, there's a significant element of the public don't think sending all refugees to Rwanda uh, or detaining them is the right answer. People, for, for different reasons, 
don't think it's the right thing to do or don't think it's the work a workable thing to do. So, you know, I think politicians are pushing this. Like, I think that there's a danger that they well, they are playing with fire. It really feels like these new proposals and the threats of incarceration will only increase the incidence of children going missing in the city. There's a lot of controversy about the Illegal Migration Bill, which will go before the House of Lords for a second reading on Wednesday, 10th of May. It seeks to prevent unlawful migration by deporting asylum seekers to their home country or to a safe third country to have their asylum claim processed. Proposals include the housing of refugees in disused barracks or ferries, tactics which have been tried in the past and have failed, and also the deportation of refugees to Rwanda to have their asylum claims processed. There have been many objections to the bill, and opponents believe that it goes against the UK's commitment to international law. It removes the legal right of refugees to claim asylum, and it also removes any protections offered to modern slavery victims. In addition to this, it fails to provide safe or legal routes for refugees, and it doesn't include any measures to eliminate the backlog of asylum cases, nor to tackle people smuggling gangs. It really feels like the only change, the only real change has to happen through central government. It's about policy changes, it's about funding, it's about legislation. But I really feel that there's a lot of power in community. So I want to find out what we as community members can do to get the issues spoken about, raise awareness and anything else really to move the issue along and make life better for refugees and asylum seekers in the city. The Sussex Police have been quite active in in trying to track them down and they have tracked down significant numbers of children. I don't know the the details. Um, the data that I've seen said that 137 children are recorded as having gone missing and all but 66 have been tracked. 66 is still a significant number of Mm. children to be untraced in this way. Um, I mean, the, the children clearly can't be kept in the hotels against their will. No. Um... Although that could change, couldn't it? I mean, we're talking about upcoming Rhetoric. legislation yeah, yeah. and, you know, the rhetoric coming from government and, you know, the new immigration bill. It, it's definitely on the cards that children might be inca- incarcerated. Yeah. For years we've been campaigning for an end to, to children being housed in these hotels, which are clearly not ideal for them, but certainly not for the length of time that they've been housed in hotels. And, and now the hotels are slowly closing. Certainly the central government plans are to close the hotels. But children are likely, at the moment, to be put in places which are significantly worse yeah. than those hotels. Well, there's talk of, you know, barracks, mm. ferries, yeah. all of this sort of thing, isn't yeah. there? In a way that, you know, even if technically they did have freedom of movement, they're likely to be so isolated sure. that they're not going to be able to get out of them anyway. Um, so they're essentially, essentially prison camps, mm-hmm. you know, even if not actually incarcerated, which is very, very troubling. I mean, children do go missing from children's homes yeah. more, more regularly. That's true. And I think that's probably the comparison, um, even though 
you know, these hotels aren't officially children's homes. They're essentially unregistered children's homes. The Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration um, referred to them as that about 18 months ago, and I think that's probably a reasonably accurate statement that they're, they're essentially unregistered children's homes. Um, you know, children's homes have have set protocols about yeah. informing the police, and the police are then able to to get activated much more quickly. There has been a level of outrage, I think, that, that is entirely appropriate when that number of children go missing. But it's certainly not been as universal as you would expect. Mm. I mean, the people that, that I'm in contact regularly are, are exactly those people who are outraged about this. One of the difficulties of activism in the city has been that even though it has inevitably and, and I think demonstrably improved the lives of people living in the hotels, the thing that would most improve their lives is to stop living in hotels. And that's something that we don't have control over in the city. You know, We don't have control over who is living there, over how long they live there for, over you know, what happens to them afterwards. So even though there is a lot that can be done at a local level to improve the lives of people while they're here, the fact that they are here is not really a, a decision which is taken locally. So that requires a degree of campaigning which, which has to be coordinated at a national level. Mm. Um, you know, the council is often not aware of the presence of children before they arrive. There isn't a coordination between the Home Office and the Council, even for things as basic as schooling. And the Council has to, to start to pick up the pieces and respond ad hoc, really. One of the things I read about children who had been recovered is a lot of them have been found with family members. Mm. So do you happen to know what happens when they're found with family members? I don't know. Um, I think if there is a possibility of confirming that they are family members, they can stay with those family members. But the concern, of course, is that um, people who, who are not family members report that they are family members and are then able to continue keeping children in, essentially in conditions of modern slavery. I mean, that's one of the concerns about mm -hmm. what might happen to children. Again, we don't have the statistics to know. Certainly, there's evidence that that has happened to some of the children, um, but by no means all. Um, so, so the question then, just from a safeguarding perspective, is, is how do you confirm that someone is a family member um, in that context, which... You know, which is surprisingly difficult when people don't necessarily have documentation. If it can be confirmed that someone is an, an aunt or an uncle you know, who has the welfare of the child at heart, then, then clearly they should be able to stay with that family member. But that can be a real challenge and can take some time. In some cases it, it would require communication with authorities in the country of origin and... In, in a lot of cases, Syria, Afghanistan, Eritrea being obvious examples, um, the UK government has no official relationship with authorities in those countries. So, so determining those relationships is a, a really difficult task. Mm. Um, and, um, 
know, can even involve some sort of you know, invasive methods like blood tests in some cases. Um, but, um, but that also requires a degree of, of financial support to do that. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a difficult process mm. in, that, in that context. It, so I've also read about allegations of child trafficking for county lines. Mm. How prevalent do you think that might be? Do you know anything about that? I don't know of any hard evidence to indicate how, how prevalent it is, how many people are involved. I mean, I think there's a, there's a concern that because these children are vulnerable and potentially on the streets, that they could then be picked up. But that would be the same for any vulnerable child. Even locally speaking, in my work in the community, I've come across families who've been very concerned about their children being trafficked along county lines. And the level, for example, is an area in the city that's been identified as a, a place where children are picked up. Mm. One of the concerns is that the Hotel for Unaccompanied Asylum Seekers was becoming known to people engaged in, in those sorts of activities. And there were some reports of people being seen around there, you know, essentially looking for kids that they could, they could pick up. And I think it makes me think again to your analogy that you brought up earlier about children's homes. Mm. And that's something that's been happening for, for decades, mm. isn't it? Especially yeah. along coastal towns. Exactly. Yeah. But yet there, clearly, the problem is still there. But there are recognised institutional responses which sure. are you know, joined up between all of the various statutory organisations, health, education, police, etc. And these kids are already part of the system, so, mm. you know, they, they are known. Exactly. So I think it's much easier as well. Yeah. What are your biggest concerns now, and what, what do you feel really needs to be addressed next? One of the things we haven't done very well in the city, um, I spoke about all of the, the various things I think we have done very well, but any sort of legal representation is in really short supply in the city. Qualified legal support that is available for free through legal aid, very, very limited. And in many cases, the difference between receiving asylum and being able to stay in this country and being rejected and being in the system for deportation is decent legal representation. So that can make an enormous difference. And secondly is what happens once the hotels are closed. Now, even though we've been campaigning for an end to people being housed in hotels, the, the solution which is being proposed now in the current legislation going through Parliament is, is significantly worse than that. If they're stuck in much larger numbers in disused barracks in East Sussex, that will raise difficulties for the sort of community activism that I think has responded very effectively in Brighton and Hove and elsewhere um, to people in these situations of real difficulty, but it's going to be a challenge to maintain that in the future. Mike's views were echoed by that of my foster family. You know, it's been like that for 25 years. You had different governments, you've had home secretaries who feel that to stop the newspapers having a go at them, or to stop, they feel, the public having a go at them, the, the right thing, or the smarter thing to do is talk tough. You know, in a way, you know, what we're seeing now is different because it's more, like, you know, more inhumane, but it's all part of the same pattern that like we've been having for 25 years.
Finally, I wanted to know if there was any advice we could offer to a young asylum seeker newly arrived in the UK. Don't worry too much. I was worrying too much about the Home Office decisions and stuff. It's not worth it, to be honest. You still need to know what the situation would be, whether they're going to take you back, because they're talking about taking you somewhere, country that you come from, whether you're France or Italy or wherever, and they have the stupid stuff back to Rwanda and stuff. I would say, that like, don't worry about this stuff. I guess, like, go study and then do your activities, because do a lot of sports, I guess, and build a relationship with people. In that way, you probably... It's best for your mental health and stuff because, you know, if you keep thinking about the home of and stuff, you will end up having a lot of mental problems and then I think that's not good for for these young people, you know. I just hope the best for my for my country and obviously it's not a nice thing, you know, when war is not something that you say one thing and then there's something will happen, but I just hope the best for people there and I know there's people that have been su I mean, suffering a lot and some people I mean a lot of people that died I mean some people they're here they lost their family they have got no no way to go back to see them you know it's really hard so I'll I'll just say I just hope for the best and that's all I can say. Thank you to all of my guests today and thank you guys for listening. I've been Yawa Bottomley and you've been listening to Behind the Hashtag visit www.behindthehashtag.org to find links to organisations featured in our programme today and also to find out what you can do to take your activism beyond the Twittersphere and out into the real world. 